Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. You folk know, don't you, that you are a part of a really, really good church. You know that? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, I tend to look for the highlight in a service, and, and for me, it's often not in the sermon. <laughs> um, I'd have to be really, really, really good this morning to beat the highlight so far for me. It came in the conversation about helping the, the expectant mother of twins. You might have missed it. It was, that, it was that moment when she said, I didn't bother to ask whether they were married or not. That was the highlight of the service for me. My uh, good friend and reading mentor, Father Thomas Merton, once said that our job as Christians is to simply love people without stopping to ask whether or not they are worthy. That, he says, is none of your business. In fact, that is nobody's business. It is in the act of loving that worthiness is created. It's by loving folks and not worrying about, oh boy, I hate to do this to you, the car that they drive up to the food bank. <laughs> you already confessed, right? So that's, that's okay. Um, that's a beautiful picture of, of, of what we can do and, and of what we often do as we kind of look out at our world. Well, well, the 18th chapter of Matthew, some people love it and some people hate it, and I, I don't love it. But um, because the 18th chapter of Matthew, man, it's tough. Um, it, it talks about our frailty, our weakness, our tendency to disappoint one another. Our, I mean, to use Jesus' words, our tendency to sin against one another, to, to hurt each other. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about how it unfolds in just a minute. By the way, this is a really, really short sermon this morning. With a <laughs> Thank you, I needed that because this is coming right back at you. With a, with a really long introduction. I'll let you know when the sermon starts. Because the introduction's long. Uh, after, after talking about uh, forgiveness for a while, Peter, don't you love Peter? Peter is such a doofus. If it wasn't for some of the dumb things Peter said, we wouldn't know nearly as much as we do about the heart of Jesus. Jesus' heart is revealed often in response to Peter's stupid comments. You know, I don't care what these other guys do, I will never, ever forsake you. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Jesus says. And then he says, let not your heart be troubled. Wow. There's the heart of Jesus. And so in, in, in the middle of this conversation about forgiveness, Peter uh, steps up and says this. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church, some translations say if a brother or sister, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive them? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 70 times seven 
time. Now, confession. How many of you have done the math to figure out when you could stop forgiving? <laughs> and what's the magic number? Come on, somebody's got a calculator if you can't think that. 490, that's exactly right. So on the 491th time, we're off the hook, right? Wrong. I, you see, folks, quality relationships within the church are about the path, not the math. They're about the path we walk together, not some mathematic equation that says at some point you are no longer forgivable. At some point this relationship is no longer salvageable because you've crossed the magic line. Peter had a, when you think about it, Peter offered a pretty good number, didn't he? How many times should I forgive a brother or sister in the church who hurts me? I, the, you know, my sense, my experience, having been in the church since nine months before I was born, uh, not always willfully, but I've been there. Um, my experience has been that most of us top out around two or three. So we really shouldn't be all that hard on Peter for suggesting seven as the number. Well, we're going to come back to that after the introduction to this message. <laughs> because you see, what we're talking about this morning are relationships in the body of Christ, relationships in the church. And I want to suggest to you this morning that relationships within the body of Christ are the proving ground of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The Christian life is not lived in isolation, but in association with God and with one another in the body of Christ. Now, there are relationships inside and outside the church. What we're talking about this morning are the relationships that we have within the body of Christ inside the church. They're really significant issues about the role of forgiveness in our lives in, in terrible circumstances of neglect and abuse and harm. Man, that's tough. We're not really talking about that this morning. Maybe, maybe we should, and we might mention a couple of things before we're done. But really what's going on here is Jesus talking about the quality of our relationships within the body of Christ. And as you all know from messages I've preached before and maybe from the Bible you've read on your own, Jesus has always said that it's the quality of the relationship within the body of Christ that is our principal witness to the world. And, and the, the more, this, see, I'm, this brand new thing, I've been, I've been as upset by the division in the world right now as anybody I know. And if you think you've been more upset, you're wrong. I have. <laughs> but I'm just thinking again that the more division, the more animosity, the more rancor there is in the world around us, the darker it gets, the more the light can shine the tougher the relationships are outside the body, the more important it is that there is a visible quality of love within the community so that people can say, wow, I can't even sit down at my table without arguing. How do you people get along? 
And then we talk about Jesus and about the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Well, th this, again, is all introduction. The, the, this theme of the quality of the life of the community being the primary witness that we have to the world is not new, and it's not New Testament. The Ten Commandments, read them again someday. The Ten Commandments are simply God's guide to getting along in community. Um, let me see if I can get in a little trouble this morning. Um, the Ten Commandments, I, I don't have any issue with this necessarily. I'm just saying that, that God did not give the Ten Commandments so you could put them on the lawn at the courthouse or the city hall. Now, if your city's happy with the Ten Commandments, I, that's great. I don't have any problem with that at all. But if God had wanted City Hall to have the Ten Commandments, he would have given them to Pharaoh in Egypt. But he called Israel out. And then if you look at the 19th chapter of, of uh, Exodus, where the, just before the giving of the Ten Commandments, some of you my age remember Charlton Heston, you know. If you're considerably younger than that, you remember the animated version. If you're in the middle, you remember that, that episode of The Simpsons where uh, uh, season six, it's one of the best episodes. <laughs> uh, um, but before God gives the Ten Commandments, he has this conversation with Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to go down and I want you to ask the people if they're in or they're out. I want you to ask the people if they are willing to be my people if they are willing to walk with me. If they are, I've got something for you and for them. Moses comes down the mountain, uh, asks the question. They say, we're in. We're 100% in. We're 99 and we're in. <laughs> and he goes back up and he says, the people are in. And, and God says, then I've got something for them. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And he says to Moses, this is Gene's paraphrase, he says to Moses, this is how the world is going to come to know me. They're going to see the way you folk live together. I'm going to give you the law, and I'm going to give them you. You get that? It's the same in the church. We should not be seeking to Christianize our nation through legislation. We should be seeking to Christianize our nation by being Christian. That's okay. Because the people that didn't clap are really mad right now, but that's all right. That's all right. It's always been about the quality of life within the community being our primary witness to the world. The Sermon on the Mount brings those commandments into the context of the kingdom of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. You've heard it said you shouldn't kill each other, but I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. If you say, if you call your brother a fool, oh man, that's tough. We should use another word. You know, you're guilty. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if your heart's filled with lust, you know, oh, but again, it's always spoken into the heart of the community. And the community is always to be the way the world finds out 
who God is. Paul picks this up in many of his letters and talks about the Christian community focusing not on their own interests, but on the interests of others, being that kind of community that cares about the life of the other in the community. First John, in, in the letter of First John, John says, by the way, if, if you, these are his words, not mine, don't be mad at me, be mad at John. If you say you love me and hate your brother, you are a liar. Wow. How can you say you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have, or sister, whom you have seen? You see the theme working its way through Scripture, not just New Testament, but Old Testament, all the way through. God is calling his people to live together in a way that is attractive to the whole world and that allows the world to see what a spirit-filled body really looks like. Well, let's, let's, we're still in the introduction. Let's, let's walk quickly through the 18th chapter. In the first verses, uh, this is one of those doofus moments for the disciples. In, in the 18th chapter, the disciples come to Jesus and say, so who, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And you know what their motivation for asking the question is. Same as yours and mine would have been, by the way. And Jesus brings a child over and says, this one. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you've got to be like this. And then in verses 6 to 7, he said, and by the way, you'd better not do anything that causes one of these little ones to stumble. And in 8 and 9, he says, and by the way, you better deal with the stuff that's causing you to stumble too. And in verse 10 to 14, he says, the greatest joy in heaven comes when someone come who is lost is brought home. In verses 15 to 20, which is the ones we're most familiar with in the 18th chapter of Matthew, those are the ones, if your brother sins against you, go to him and, and talk to him, and if, he, and if he refuses to listen, take somebody with you, and if he still refuses to listen, uh, take an elder with you, and they then take the church, and if, and if he still refuses, then he should be as a Gentile to you, which some have thought is all about throwing people out. <laughs> those people have forgotten how Jesus treated Gentiles. He reached out to them and sought to draw them in. Uh, verses, uh, verses 15 to 20 are, are not about retribution. They're about restitution. And so here, here's the path. I, I told you it's not about the math. It's about the path. And, and there, are, there are really four steps on the path to this kind of quality relationship that is a witness to the world. First is humility the little child. Humility is, is to live in community focused not on our own needs, but also on the needs of others. It's to live in community understanding, first of all, that we are forgiven people, that we are broken people. We are not better than. We are forgiven people. Uh, the, the second step on the path is responsibility. Two things uh, about that. One is uh, live in such a way that you don't put a stumbling block in front of anyone. Live in such a way that, that, that the church is a safe place for the people around you because you're there. And you don't do anything that causes anyone. There was this thing in Paul's day about eating meat sacrificed to idols. You know that story? Uh, it, was, it was very, very common for pagans to... to um, 
uh, chop up the pig and bring part of it or the cow or whatever and bring part of it to the temple and as an offering, as a sacrifice, and, and then the priest gladly received the sacrifice and then took it out to the farmer's market behind the, the, the temple and sold it. You know, it's, it's not that much different than a car wash or a rummage sale, I guess, is it? But, and, and, and so there was this thing about whether Christians should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Paul loved a good steak, and it didn't matter who it had been sacrificed to. He was very willing to eat it. But, he said, if I have a brother or sister who is concerned about that and, and that would cause them to stumble, I will not do it. Paul said on this issue, Paul still the introduction, on this issue, Paul said, um, there are no other gods. So just because somebody laid that fillet down in front of a statue and offered it to the statue, nothing happened to the meat because there's no such thing as that god. So if I can buy that meat for $2 a pound rather than going to Winco and paying $7 a pound, I'm going for that. But he also said, I won't touch it if by touching it I cause harm to a brother or sister. Humility. Stum uh, responsibility. No stumbling blocks. Restoration. That's that passage in, in Matthew 18 where it talks about if somebody sins against you, go to them. Seek to restore them. And the final step on the path is what we're going to talk about this morning. The final step on the path is reconciliation. Genuine forgiveness. I've, I've sat with, with too many people who have been deeply, deeply hurt through horrific experience and abuse. If you are one of those people, that's not what I'm talking about here. That's another issue. And forgiveness is important and forgiveness is possible. But I'm talking about the relationship that we have with one another in the church. Where, where it is not just enough to not hold it against someone anymore. What the gospel calls us to is restoration and reconciliation. And being the body of Christ. Humility, responsibility, restoration, and reconciliation. In the area of relationships, no skill is more important than the skill of forgiveness. Nothing is closer to godliness in our lives than the act of forgiveness. We've gotten the idea, and it's a shame, that holiness is mostly about not doing stuff. That holiness is mostly about the things we don't do. Uh, when I was growing up, one of the things holy people didn't do was dance. Thankfully, we got over that, I guess. All my life, I was told I couldn't dance. In the summer after my freshman year in college, I found out it was true. <laughs> so, somewhere... Somewhere, in, in, somewhere, there's a there's a woman in her mid to late 60s who's probably still in therapy for that <laughs> moment of not dancing with that kid who had been told all his life he couldn't dance and he should have taken their word for it because it was, man, was it ever was was it ever true? 
Some of us grew up in a time when holiness was mostly about the things we didn't do. That's a shame. God isn't good because of the things God doesn't do. God is good because of what God does. <laughs> and the crown jewel in the crown of what God does is forgiveness. God forgives. And to be a godly person is to be a forgiving person. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, how about I can't stand it. Forgive us our trespasses as we are in the process of forgiving those who trespass against us. You mean those that haven't even trespassed yet? Yep. Those. To walk in the steps of Jesus, to walk in the path of this kind of healing and hope and help and reconciliation is to, is to walk with a predisposition of forgiveness. I, I am to be predisposed to forgive you for that dumb thing you did to me, and you haven't even done it yet. And I am called to embrace you with forgiveness. Here's the hard part. The question is, for Peter, who goes first? In the world, it's the, it's the perpetrator that's supposed to go to the victim and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Have you noticed that in the kingdom it doesn't work that way? We have a fairly decent model. Paul said, you know, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that clear enough? So in the kingdom, it's the victim. It's the person who's been done wrong to against or at. You get it. The responsibility lies with me when I'm hurt. The hurty, to go to the hurt-er. And, and, and Jesus is the model for that. And so Peter says what we all say at the end of that kind of a lesson. Peter goes to Jesus and says, yeah, but how often? How much do I have to take? How long do I have to put up with this? And that's where I, I think Peter, Peter was trying really hard when he suggested seven, because I don't know if I've ever gotten to seven. And, and Jesus comes back and just blows it apart. And, and what we learn from the number that Jesus gave is that the number makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. You get it? So you don't get to carry around a little book with a blank sheet of paper and marks next to it so that you know when you get to 490. Because <laughs> on 491, Jesus said you can quit. <laughs> Didn't matter whether you said 7 or 70 times 7 or 70 times 70 times 70 times 7. It doesn't matter because it's not the math, it's the path. That we walk together. The commandment Jesus gives is simply to do what I do, to forgive like I forgive. You watch me, he might have said to Peter. When I stop forgiving, you can stop forgiving. And then you think about this whole thing with the cross. 
It's why the number that Jesus gives is of absolutely no importance. It's just as unchristlike to stop forgiving on 491 as it would have been on 2 or 8. We live in a community that calls us to be forgiving people of one another. And the bounds of that forgiveness have already been set by Jesus, who is our Lord and is our example. Jesus never asks his disciples to do what he will not and has not already done. Here's, here's the good news in this. Uh, Jesus commands us to forgive more than we think we should. And he empowers us to forgive more than we think we can. I think that's good. He, he, he requires us to forgive more than we think we should, but he empowers us to forgive more than we think we can. Okay, here's where the message starts. Um, but it's going to be short. So he, he shared this parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, uh, one who owed him 10,000 talents, we're going to talk about what that means, um, was brought to him, and he could not pay. His Lord ordered him to be sold. That was how you took care of that kind of an issue. Ordered this slave to be sold together with his, with his wife and children and all his possessions so that payment, or at least part of it, could be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But the same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe me. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. He went and threw him into prison until he would pay the whole debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, as they should have been. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him the first slave to him and said you wicked slave I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you and in his anger his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt so my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart Wow. The, it's not about the math, as the title suggests, but let me just do the math for you. Uh, I, I don't do numbers, so I've got this written down here in, in, my, in my notes somewhere. What page am I on? Oh, here we are. Uh, he owed, he owed uh, 10,000 talents. Um, I can't remember exactly how this works out, but this is how it finally works out. It, it works out to 60 million days wages. 
I'm going to let that just sink for a minute. <laughs> 60 million days wages is what the first slave owed. You say, is that true? No, it's not. Jesus made up a really big number for a really big reason. Because what he wanted us to understand is that the, that the debt forgiven to the first slave, the mercy of God, is without limit. It is boundless. I, I couldn't tell I had my calculator with me because I used it several times in this message because I don't do numbers. I was, by the way, somebody asked me when I first sensed a call to preach, and, and I, I thought about a date my, after my freshman year in college, but then I remembered that when I was in sixth grade, Mr. Krauss stood in front of our classroom and said, you can't make a living without math. And I thought, oh yeah? <laughs> I'll preach. Some of that story is probably made up. See, I, I even what I told you just now wasn't exactly right. Six, 60 million denarii is what it works out to, which is, this is still mind-boggling for me, uh, that's about 170,000 days of work to make that money in, in that economy. What's the point? The point is not the number. The point is that the mercy of the master was without limit. And, and the slave got up free, owing no one anything. And the first thing he did was run into somebody that owed him about six bucks, is how the math works. And he grabbed him by the throat and he said, pay me now. And the guy said, I can't pay you now. And so he threw him in jail until it all got paid. Whew, that's a harsh picture. But I fear sometimes it's a picture of us. Who will sing praises to God for his great mercy that is greater than our sin. Who will thank the Lord for the debt that we've been forgiven. But then who will turn around and look at the back of the church and say, yeah, but you don't know what they said. <laughs> you don't know what they did. Yeah, we used to be pretty good friends, but, you know, one or two things. You know, yeah. Remember that I said earlier that God not only commands us to forgive more than we think we should, but he empowers us to forgive more than we think we can. Within the body of Christ, if we hold a grudge, if we harbor ill feeling towards someone it doesn't honestly it does not matter what they did to you if we harbor that grudge in our hearts it is not a failure to forgive it is a refusal to forgive if if you are a spirit-filled child of god there is nothing you can't forgive <laughs> Ooh, man i wish i hadn't said that i did when we hold on to that stuff, it's not because we can't let it go. It's because we won't. I have a friend who said once that our, sometimes we refuse to, give because, to forgive because it means we have to let go of our hope of a better past. Hmm. I really hope that didn't happen. And I'm going to hang on to that just in case someday it didn't happen. <laughs> but it did. 
I hope someday they wouldn't have said that. So I'm going to hold on to that because someday they might not have ever said that. No, it's not going to happen. We, we don't fail to forgive because we, we don't not forgive because we can't. We, we don't forgive because we won't forgive. And then, then you've got those, those words at the close of, of this that are, that are terrifying. The master heard about the unforgiving servant and he brought him back in and he said, because you won't forgive someone who owes you a little bit, he, the text says he was mad and he threw him in prison and he was tortured until he would pay it all back. Now remember the amount we're talking about. And remember that you're, when you're being tortured, you can't go to work. So you, you have a really hard time getting started on that 170,000 days of work that you have to work, you know. I, th I think I used to think that that, that whole thing about uh, torture and being thrown in prison until we paid it back, I used to think that was about hell and stuff. And I, I don't know that I do anymore. I... I think it's not a prison that we'll spend eternity in. I think it's a prison that we build for ourselves here and now. When, when we let a little thing build and we don't forgive and we put a brick in the ground and then we put a bar in the brick and then something else happens and we add a brick and a bar, y'all play Monopoly. There is something fundamentally unchristian about a game where winning means destroying everybody else in the room financially. Why do I love that so much? Why, why, with every ounce of my being, did I hope my children landed on my hotel on boardwalk so they would be completely wiped out? Why? Well, anyway... Um, when you go around the corner, if you land on the wrong place, there's this arrow and a guy with his finger pointing that way, and he says, go to jail, go directly to jail. You also can get a card that sends you there. There are two ways to get out of jail. One is to roll doubles. The other is to pay 50 bucks. You all know you're up, up on this story? I don't know anybody, at least I've never played Monopoly with anybody, who's been willing to pay the 50 bucks the first time around. We all think we might roll doubles. <laughs> And we almost never do. And the game is going on, and everybody's having a good time, and we're in jail. And finally, our turn comes around again, and we pay the 50 bucks. There's another game going on. It's called living together in the church. And if you live in the church long enough, somebody's going to hurt you. And yeah, the flip side of that's true, too. If you live in the church long enough you're going to hurt somebody. It's tragic when people are hurt enough or hurt enough that they eventually just walk away. We don't realize that it's in those moments that we feel like walking away that we have the opportunity to do the thing that will bind us closer and closer together. That in that moment, we can forgive and we can open up our hearts again and we can be the body of Christ and the world can look in and say, yeah, but aren't they the one that did and weren't they and didn't want, remember back in 82 when they and you said that and 
How come you're still friends? How come you still have dinner together? Well, because we've forgiven each other. I think we, we, build, a, we build our own prison. One person at a time, as we are hurt or we hurt and we refuse, we are not unable, we refuse to forgive. I want to end with a beautiful, beautiful story. True story. We, we have a, a dear friend who is dying. Uh, this will likely be her last week with us. Her daughters are with her, and in their own words on a post last evening, they are waiting patiently for mom to go home. By the way, mom's too young to be going home. The hospice worker, I'm reading this because I want to get it right. The hospice worker told the girls today that their mother would pass soon. These are the words from one of their most recent posts to their friends who are waiting patiently with them. And now I'm quoting. The nurse we saw today talked about what we could expect over the next few days and made some suggestions about things we could do to be helpful and supportive. Things like telling her we loved her, telling her we forgave her for anything she might have done to hurt us, and apologizing for the things we might have done to hurt her. As a family, this is still a quote, as a family, we were not perfect. My sister and I fought as siblings do. We rebelled as teenagers do, and we disobeyed on occasion. Every one of us lost our temper a time or two. But at this point, oh, see, tune in now, folks. Whatever you've been doing through the rest of the message, I get it. Tune in now. Um, at this point, it is another blessing that apologizing and forgiving one another does not need to be on our list of things to do in our final days. Let me, let me read that again. At this point, it is another blessing that apologizing and forgiving one another does not need to be on our list of things to do in these final days. And then she says this, forgiveness and love has been freely given when necessary. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? What a tragedy to come to the end of a life or a relationship in the church and say, I really should have told them they were forgiven. I really should have said I was sorry. It would have really been good to have done that. <laughs> and in this young woman's words, nah, we don't need to do that. We've been doing that all along. The darker it gets outside, the more difference the light makes. The more divided our country and our community and your job and all, you know, the more divided people get, the more of an impact a spirit of love and forgiveness can make in that community. 
I'm a long way from being thankful for the dark and thankful for the division. But I am being called anew, I believe, to recognize the opportunity that it gives the church to be the church and, and to make a difference. We, we don't forgive because we can't. Because our ability to forgive through the power of the Holy Spirit is absolutely limitless. We don't forgive because we won't. And we build our own walls around ourselves. I, I, want, I want to be what this young lady, I want to be able to say what this young lady says. Forgiveness doesn't have to be on the list of things I do right at the end because we've been doing that all along. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these words. Thank you for Peter's impetuous question because, frankly, it's what we were all thinking anyway. And I just pray, Father, that uh, you will give us a spirit of forgiveness, that you may speak the name of a person into our hearts today or tomorrow or sometime during the week and, and help us to seek restoration, to seek reconciliation, to seek to be the body of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. You're dismissed.